My name is Matt Neal. Uh, I've been asked to interview the man next to me and talk about the book that you can see in front of you here. Uh, and that's all you need to know about me. I'd like to introduce Josh Pomari and his book, Call Me Evie. Thanks for coming along, Josh. Thanks for having me. So let's get the really difficult question out of the way first. Uh, what is the book about? <laughs> um, I, should, I should definitely be more prepared for this. Uh, the book is about a young woman, um, Evie, or Kate. Um, that's not a spoiler. That happens very early yeah, on. Yeah, because no spoilers because I'm still a quarter of the way through <laughs> okay. the book. So, uh, so yeah. So um, it's about uh, essentially uh, family more than anything else, but it's about um, a young woman who's... Uh, finds herself um, in the captivity of an older gentleman in a place she's never been to, running from something um, terrible that's happened back in Melbourne um, that she can't fully remember or grasp um, for one reason or another. <clears throat> and it's um, yeah, like it's 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 about family. It's about um, confronting you know uh, the past and com confronting your demons. Um, and there's, there's a whole host of other sort of issues but as soon as I go on to I enter spoiler territory so I think I might leave it there. Has anyone here read the book yet? Yeah a couple of hands. Is anyone reading the book at the moment? Who's just here for the free event? <laughs> uh, everyone's here to learn about the book and about you obviously Josh. So um, I've seen the book described somewhere as a literary thriller. Is what what does that mean to you? Is this just a is this just a term someone at your publishing house has cooked yeah. up, or does, it, does this I mean, mean something? I mean, things like that are generally just designations um, from the publishing house to say, you know, this book was also a literary thriller, and also to say the literary thriller. So they make these little micro genres so you can be the top of them. Um, but I think I was quite sort of flattered because. Um, I, it started off as a, a literary endeavour. It was a really literary novel <clears throat> um, really early on and um, the more I sort of reworked and the more I thought about the actual story, it, it just couldn't exist as a, as a purely literary novel. So um, through the editing process, uh, it, it sort of began to lean more towards, um, you know, the more sort of commercial side, uh, more crime and thriller um, elements started to emerge. So it was... Yeah, it, it's, it is really flattering that they put the literary tag on it um, because, you know, most of my favourite books are, are, are literary books. Um, but many of my favourite books are also crime, thrillers, suspense, psychological suspense. So I think I, that was what I was most comfortable writing um, was that sort of literary novel, I think. Um, but it wasn't that good, quite frankly. So, um, you know... My short stories are probably more literary, but there's always like a sort of twist of genre elements to it, um, to them. So, yeah, I, th I think it's, I think it is, to answer your question in short, it was one of those sort of things the publishing house decides to do um, that I was extremely pleased about, frankly. Was that a difficult moment in the process to go, okay, I, I need to move this more into a genre or, or to, to redefine it in some way? So it's not just a literary book. Was that a hard thing to wrestle with, or a hard thing to rewrite? Yeah, I mean, it it, it would it would have been if it was like I was convinced I was like you know the next Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Um, 
that would be a pretty bitter pill to swallow. But um, I think, the, you know, a, a strength of... Um, as a writer, I think a strength is a certain self-awareness about where you're at in terms of your writing, um, what your strengths and weaknesses are, um, and recognising... Um, well, just acknowledging that, you know, um, entering, wading into sort of the territory of genre and crime doesn't necessarily mean it's not good writing or well-written, um, which is is something you, I kind of had to get over um, because, like I said, many of my favourite books are literary um, and that's what I kind of wanted to write at some stage. But I, it was that thing of going, what's I loved Gone Girl. Why, why can't I write more like that um like uh Wimera by um mark brandy books like that I, I i loved which were technically crime but they were really well written and and they sort of enrich uh sorry they they fed the side of me that kind of is, is craving um the craft side of writing they had to be well written they had to have that sort of poetry um and the language so i i just looked at books like Wimera is a, a really good example um the driver jane Harper is another good one um, that are technically crime, but it's so well written. I, I just thought, what you know? Why can't I write like? Why can't I try to write like that instead of aping um, like McCarthy and like Steinbeck and and these greats that, um, quite frankly, I realised like I couldn't, I could never be. So um, it was a, it was a learning curve. Uh, I got a really like, I got a good support network um, around me. My wife, my publisher, uh, my agent are all. They all know how to sort of. Molly Coddle and make sure I, they don't hurt my feelings when they say, um, you know, maybe you should lean this way or that way rather than sort of focusing on the, um, as I said, trying to be the next McCarthy. Now, uh, you've, been, you've been writing short stories for a while. You do a podcast about writing. You've been doing that for a while. So obviously this has been sort of uh, your first book. Everything's basically building to your first book, really. But do you remember the moment when you decided this is what I'm going to write my first book about or where, call me Evie, where that genesis point was for that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant question. Uh, it's, it's, if, you, if you ask me the point in time, I'd, I'd have no idea um, when I decided to write this particular book. Um, I'd written a couple of uh, like practice novels um, that hadn't gone anywhere. Uh, there's one I really liked that um, my computer blew up and I, and I lost it um, and I'm glad I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say that because I, you know, I thought it was good enough. It was like a second draft. I, I probably would have sent it out to publishers and agents and um, I probably would have never heard from them and I just wasn't, you know, I just wasn't good enough. Um, so this one came like not long after that but I... You know, as soon as I started to get some short stories and articles published, um, I began to think, you know, maybe I'm at the level I can try a novel again. Maybe, maybe I'm ready. Um, so while that was going on, and when I was starting to get some sort of um, that sense of accomplishment of just even a really solid rejection letter for a short story, when I started to get that, I, you start to think, well, you know what? Maybe I'm not terrible after all. Like maybe there is a novel in me. So um, these practice novels, other than the one I lost, none of them I thought seriously I could publish. Um, but they were they were practice. Um, Evie came about 
ultimately because I was really obsessed with a small town in New Zealand called Makatu, which no one's been to or probably even heard of. Um, you wouldn't, you'd take you hours if you're searching the map. That's how small the name is. It's like you have to go on Google Maps and scroll right in before Makatu, the name pops up. Um, it's really tiny. It's one of the only places in uh, the east coast of or what's called the Bay of Plenty in New Zealand. Um, one of the only towns that's gone down in population over the last decade. So it's, so it's getting smaller while everywhere around it, houses of average house prices are reaching a million dollars, um, are just exploding. And tiny little Makatu is getting smaller. <clears throat> and so I was obsessed with this place and I, and I knew eventually I'd want to write about it. Um, and then, so I had my place and then I sort of had this idea for a character that again, I was really obsessed with. And these two things, it was like a kind of, not a moment, there was no penny dropping, but they kind of merged. I was like, okay, where should I put her? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll be a real asshole and put her in market too. Not that it's a bad place, but as a visitor, you go there and it's like a mongrel mob stronghold. So there's like, there's a really, strong gang presence which doesn't necessarily come out as much in the book but the locals are really insular um they mess with outsiders a little bit even if you live 30 kilometers up the road they don't like you um so i was like cool kate you're gonna market too uh for, for a nice little getaway um and then so i had those two things i'm like well how does kate get here and that's essentially the story emerged from that um through iteration and iteration and rewriting and redrafting and editing, um, the story kind of formed from those two things. It was definitely setting, then character, then plot. And th she's from Melbourne originally, and that's where you live now. So being from New Zealand originally, and then mixing it with Melbourne, what you know as well, that has obviously played your own experiences of where you've lived has played a big part in this as well, obviously then. Yeah, so she, she does the opposite trip. Yeah. Um, and when I got to Melbourne, I was like, I'd been in Wellington, which is like, I don't know, not Win huge. Windy Wellington's a lovely place. It's, it's it is a lovely place. Um, but even in Wellington, I wasn't like sophisticated. Like I was just some farm kid um, pretending to be a city slicker. I was, you know. And then I came to Melbourne and I was like, who are these people? I was like wearing Crocs in the city. And everyone's just like, who, who is this guy? Um, You're a hipster then, I think. Yeah. <laughs> The Crocs will come back, trust me. Um, so we were, yeah, so when I moved over, I was like, it was, it was un, like, I'd, I'd never been anywhere like Melbourne. The closest was probably Auckland. But even back then, Auckland was not cool. Um, it was just like, I don't know, it wasn't a cool city. Um, it was like, no one's from Adelaide. <laughs> no, nah, it wasn't like so Adelaide. It was like Adelaide. <laughs> it was worse than Adelaide. Uh, but I, you know, I, I moved over to Melbourne and it, it was quite confronting how like cool and sort of that everyone has this yeah but they've got like so i i start off in yarraville and then williamstown but i spent a lot of time in like collingwood um which has kind of changed now but back then it was like quite sort of grungy and everyone was so so neurotic but they would never admit it and they, they they've got this kind of cool thing um about them <laughs> and i thought and that's sort of where Kate came from. Like I was like, Kate to me um, personifies that, that, that kind of Melbourne contradiction of the really neurotic person who pretends they're not thinking about anything. Um, she, that, that's Kate. And so 
she like there's so much about her that's me um I think I'm sort of a hybrid of her and another character, Tom. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's funny the journey you make as soon as you cross the Tasman, the things you notice. And then for me to get in Kate's head, I, I had to go back. And I'm like, so I go to Maka too, and I'm like, and we, we would go back and I'd take my notebook and I'd video the drive-in so I could remember the turns and and all the technical stuff I sh I was focusing on when I should have been focusing on the atmosphere and eventually I got there. Um, but for me, when I went back, the atmosphere for me was like, oh, this is cool, I love this place. And I'm like rolling around. And my wife, who's from Melbourne, who happens to be in the audience, um, was like, get me, can I swear? We're all adults here, aren't we? Like, yeah, get good. me the fuck out of here <laughs> right now. Pretty much. Um, she, she was really intimidated and um, wasn't, necessarily crazy about um the, the place as, as i was, was like oh i gotta take you to this place mike too i love it so beautiful you're gonna love it and then we got there and the locals were like grunting and she's like oh, i've got to get out of here um so i had to rely largely in parts um on her experience and her feedback and and recognizing that kind of guttural reaction to to a, this new setting that i knew so well it was so familiar to me so um I knew what it was like to be a new person in Melbourne, but in Makatu, which is really close to um, Rotorua where I grew up, um, I had to, yeah, I, I had to really rely on her to sort of appreciate how confronting it can be. The, um, I mentioned before you do a podcast, which is called On Writing, for those of you who are into podcasts and want to look it up. Uh, and it involves Josh interviewing writers for about an hour, so getting really deep into the process. But um, I've got asked, which came first, the podcast or the novel? Because um, this, this changes where my next question is Yeah, going. it's actually really I – th I think the novel just – the podcast is three, I think, and the novel's about three and a half, four. So I think it was a novel – and I'm like – and I'll, I think I was at a point where I was stuck and I'm like, I wish there was a resource I could go to where <laughs> – where novelists are just telling me how to do it. And then I go, I'm like, oh, maybe like I'll check out blogs. I was like, eh, a lot of reading and I'm already reading a lot. What about, I was getting into podcasts and I was like, and there wasn't really much like that. It, certainly in, a, in the United States there was, um, but not much in Australia. And I was really just a lucky idiot, basically. I was emailing writers and authors and saying, hey, come talk to me on my podcast. Um, and thank God I stuck with it because, like, at first I just had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I, I learned, you know, so much. It's incredible, um, the insights. And I got to meet Jock, who's like a local hero. Um, and He's the most famous Port Ferry person, <laughs> apparently. Port Ferry's favourite son. He's, and, like, I don't think I'm going to lose any friends by saying he's like, I love the guy. He's amazing. Um, but it was people like Jock that and just gave me... Just all sorts of insight. And even after we'd record, I'd be like, cool, so here's my book. Like, help me. And and they actually would. Um, Tony Jordan, and particularly Jock, in fact. But Tony Jordan, um, Emily Bitto, loads of fantastic, like, award-winning writers were saying, yeah, yeah, that's good. What if you reworked this way? I'm like, you're onto something. And, and it actually really, really helped. Um, and as I said, I get to ask whatever comes to my head. And often that's you know just rambling garbage or whatever but it's but it helps me more than anyone else but hopefully it helps other people a little bit as well well because that's what i was wondering i mean it, it's to do a podcast like that has got to be so helpful for people who want to write books 
And it seems not quite devious that you've done this while you're writing a book and going, hmm, how can I just call up lots of authors and ask them things? Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, it's great to hear that that was a really helpful process. What was the, some of the big pieces of, of um, just, you know, advice that you got along the way that seem, may, may seem innocuous yeah. to some people, but, you know. I knew the tough question would come. I, I should, <laughs> yeah. Um, Actually, like Jock, one thing um, Jock said, no, Chris Wormsley, I'll start with that because this is probably my favorite piece of advice. Um, I, I asked him what changed between book one and book three or four. Um, and Chris said, he goes, uh, what, what happens is you learn that you trust that you can write more good sentences. It, it was really simple. He's like, when you're a young writer, when you're writing your first novel, um, you don't want to take anything out. So you see a perfectly formed sentence or description and you, you can't take it out because you don't believe you could write something as well formed or perfect or whatever again um, but as soon as you accept if you work hard enough and keep writing and keep reworking it more gems are going to come out possibly even better than whatever description you're going to take out um, and so whenever I get to a scene that I love that I know is not working um, I go you can write like this again, like you did it once. Um, so that was like groundbreaking for me because it's that kill your darlings thing. It's so easy to say to someone, kill your darlings. Like, but what happens after you kill your darlings? Is it? <laughs> yeah, like you just, the thing is you just get back on the horse and you just keep riding and hopefully something, and you just trust eventually you're going to produce, you know, an equally as, you know, well-formed description. Um, so that was a really, that, that unlocked so much for me. That was probably... But just for me, not not in a general sense, that was the best piece of writing advice I could receive at that particular point in time. Um, I think another piece of advice that, that was fantastic is um, it's just the idea that there's milestones that you can take a pragmatic approach to writing a book and having a book published. Um, it's we spoke about this before, but it's you know um, you don't it's not like winning the lotto. It doesn't have to be. For some people, it really is. You go through the slush pile. Someone puts a six-figure check on your desk. Um, you're flying to New York, and you're on New York Times bestseller. Like it, that can possibly happen. That happened for the um, tattooist of Auschwitz. Um, she is still sitting on New York Times bestseller list and went through the slush pile. Was rejected by all the large public uh, large publishers. That's possible, but it's unlikely. So um, most writers. Um, well, many writers gave practical advice. Work on short stories because you're going to learn at a sentence level how to craft, you know, how to write well. Um, uh, join a writer's group. Things like these tiny pragmatic pieces of advice were so much better than um, the really broad show don't tell and things like that. These are things you can figure out for yourself, but it was just these really small pieces of information um, that give you a bit of a roadmap to, to public publishing a novel that was just so helpful because um, when you aren't when you don't have these insights into the industry you are you can be really naive about the process you don't think necessarily about agents you don't think about um, what the market wants you don't think about um, you know what sort of changes your publisher would expect you, you don't think about all these things um, and I think that's probably the one thing I if anyone's asked me, like, how do you get a book published? I just assume um, that they don't know that it is possible to 
grind your way towards publication instead of writing a first draft, sending it, um, sending off to Penguin, and then you know two days later getting an offer. It, it it just doesn't happen that way. So yeah, I think just be pragmatic. That's and a, if I were to collect all the best piece of advice, it was just always about being pragmatic and having that approach that if you work hard, eventually it'll happen. There's there's probably still a lot of people out there who have this sort of dream factory version of, of writing a book in their head where it's just you'll write the amazing book, it will land on someone's desk and you get the six-figure check. But, you know, that whole thing of, of running short stories, working on your craft, getting an agent, uh, re-editing, editing, re-editing, that kind of stuff, that's... That, when, was there a point when, when you realised that? Like, I mean, most people, it comes sort of too late in the piece, but yeah. you were obviously aware of it very, very early. It, it, was, it was the podcast. Like, I was super naive um, about the whole process. Um, and, like, the more... So, the better you are at writing, the worse you think you are. So, you start out and you're like, this is a bestseller. Like you look at you look at your manuscript, and you're like, "This is incredible." Um, maybe not. Maybe that's just me. Um, but I think most people, you, you like, you're so close to the to the art, you're so close to it, you can't, you can never objectively say, "I think this is good." I think this is ready. And in people who are prepared to read it are generally the same ones who aren't prepared to tell you it's crap. So they're gonna say, "Oh, I loved it. It's fantastic." Send it off. Embarrass yourself, which I did a lot. Um, and but you but but that's part of the learning curve. You have to go through that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think going back to the the question, um, for me again, it wasn't a sort of penny drop moment. Um, it was a couple of pretty, pretty generous rejections from literary magazines. That was really huge because you'd get nothing at Static Science for like years, and then someone says. It's pretty close, but or we. I really like this, but I feel like whatever. Um, the first big one was Mianjin, which is like a um, literary magazine that was like we were on our honeymoon actually um, up in the in, in Queensland, and I got this email and um, like you know you get married, it's one of the best days of your life. A couple of weeks later, you get like this. What 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 now? In retrospect. Um, probably seems really insignificant but when someone says a magazine you've been reading for years and you, and you admire every piece of work they've ever published and they email you and say we want to publish this there's a few edits we want to make it's just like like i don't know it was surreal i like that was so much bigger than getting an agent or getting a publishing contract the first time um I, I read that email i was just tingling i was like wanted to cry i ran around the house like i was uh, you know elated but when i got the book publishing contract i was like oh that's so good yeah <laughs> it was like a it was like a relief it was like an accumulation of all, all these things um so yeah that probably doesn't answer your question <laughs> <laughs> no it doesn't uh <laughs> but I, can, I mean you can understand that that the uh, getting that letter from Mianjin is is kind of like where you've sort of stepped over a threshold where, you know, and prior to that, it's just you're wandering through the wasteland, really. But something like that is a moment where you go, this this is possible. Yeah, and the, and the trouble is, I, like the thing with short stories is that's so much more achievable than getting a novel published. Like you, you, those are small milestones that you can kind of collect along the way. Um, 
and you know get, go, getting a novel published is fantastic um it's amazing it's incredible um but because i had done so much along the way there's so many small milestones that it wasn't like it wasn't like winning the lot like it wasn't a big big thing um the meandering thing was huge because it sort of unlocks the potential of my writing i was like people don't hate this you know like it's it sounds really strange but you can't i just was so skeptical about people saying they liked even in my writers group even generous rejections i, I won like a small competition i was like yeah but there's only so many entries or what you know like i was so hard on myself but that the validation from the engine was just huge um yeah so it's just i don't know like it i think i don't envy people who are writing straight as a novel and i encourage that and i and i love to see that and i want to see everyone succeed um but it's i think if you can grant yourself like those opportunities where you can get little just little points of validation along the way it's just it just helps you to feel like confident in your writing and it, and it helps you to possibly you know um take risks and and just and just feel good about where the, the direction you're heading in because if you're not getting that validation you just don't know where you're at um and so i like for instance i helped judge the unpublished manuscript award for the vic premier's um prize and i'm reading these entries and and so many of them are amazing um but they but they're not shortlisted or highly commended or winning and these people would never know how close they were so i actually emailed and said um the the organizers at the wheeler center said can i contact some of these people and say i loved it keep going because like I was entering these things years ago and I, and I was just a couple of years ago I was so devastated that I wasn't even close and you don't know how close you are um and I know it's a, particularly with novel writing it's it can be so much tougher than short story writing cuz editors of short story magazines are really generous they'll email you and let you know but I don't think publishers necessarily are like that because they get so many submissions um So with this yeah so with the unpublished manuscript prize I just that's that thing I just wanted to make sure these people knew they're on the right track and I love their work and I would read it if it was a novel. Did the Wheeler Center say you could contact Yeah they yeah, yeah they and did you, and you I did. have yeah. yeah 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 um yeah many uh like a few of them I I have that were I felt I loved and there are others that the, the other judges loved that perhaps I didn't or you know one judge might have had a favorite that wasn't shortlisted So I'd like to think hopefully they possibly did the same thing as well. Um but yeah. The, I I mean it's it's hard going along for so long and not getting any kind of his glass of wine is empty by the way. I'm just going to point that out. I'm just drinking air now. <laughs> <laughs> um to go through without any kind of encouragement and stuff. I mean it's there's obviously a drive that starts at a very very long time ago. So do you remember when it was that you or, or what it was that made you go I want to be a writer when I grow up? Um Harry Potter. I I know it's cliché and I know people don't like to hear that. Um uh my my auntie who um I hadn't seen in years she lived in England and I just loved and she was just like really dear to me. Um and I lost my mum at, at a really young age so um and having like uh one auntie who had some pretty serious mental health um issues who lived in New Zealand who I didn't see much and having one auntie who lived in England who I adored um but didn't move back until I was like in my 20s um she would write every birthday she'd write me a really nice letter and send me something and and when I was 11 she sent me Harry Potter um and the Philosopher's Stone 
Um, and when you live in like, and you're a Kiwi, less so Australians, but if you're a Kiwi and you're 11, all you want to do, the one thing you think will make your dad proud is being all black. Yes. Like, like that's, that's your, like you could be like a Supreme Court judge and you've failed. Um, so, so you're that age and, and like all you're thinking is rugby, rugby, rugby. And like, I wasn't any good. Um, which was a problem and but I, I adored reading but like reading was dweebs you know like it didn't, it didn't necessarily align with this ideal um version of my adult self which is like an all black obviously um so i um i just loved harry potter um i read the whole series it's probably the only only books i actually read in high school really um other than like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and a couple of new zealand novels but there wasn't i wasn't like a big reader. Um, I wrote a bit. Um, I, I loved writing. I was always quite into short, well, articles, but also short stories. Um, I had, when I was like 17, I had something published in the New Zealand Herald, which was really cool. Um, they had like a college Herald section where they would publish high school students, and that was huge for me. Um, but it's not something I took that seriously. I just assumed it would happen. I'm like, cool, I'm a, I'm a writer, like one day I'm going to be like a novelist. You know, you just, I just assumed it would happen without any sort of input. Um, and in your like 20s, you like drink lots or whatever, like, I don't know, you, you just aren't thinking about life goals. Um, and I think I was probably about 25, which is five years ago now. I was, um, I'd recently moved back from living in Canada. Um, my ex-girlfriend published like a terrible short story collection, like self-published it, and I was mortified. She um, gave it to her friends and family and I just hoped they all threw it away. Um, and I was, and that was like, for me, I'm like, I was like, what is this? Like your girlfriend, you know, your girlfriend's publishing, self-publishing a short story collection that no magazine or competition wants to touch. Like, what, what are you gonna do? Um, so I, um, and, and that's, you know, that's not a slight on self-publishing or anything like that. That was just me thinking this isn't exactly where I want to be. Um, so when I moved back to, Ma I was living in Canada. So when I moved back to Melbourne, I, um, I, I just took some writing classes. Basically, there's, there's nothing sexy about it. I, I, I actually just sat down and did the work, and I went to a couple of um, like workshops with writers I admired that I was fortunate enough to um, to. Because, you know, like often these, so Maxine Beneva-Clark, for instance, did a short story clinic. And that sells out straight away. I managed to get into that. Um, there was a, um, there was a, what's it called, a novel writing masterclass where you have to have a ready novel, but you go in and sit with a bunch of people at about the same level as you. Sometimes in the group there'll be a published author, which um, was the case in mine. Um, and you get really high quality feedback. And so I was... When I came, moved back from um, Canada after that, what is this terrible short story? And I was reading them in book form and suddenly you realise how bad they are because she's giving them to her friends and family and you're like, I am, t these short stories are terrible. But when they're on the computer screen, it's like there's this sort of magic about it. It's like, oh, these are great. Um, so as soon as I publish, yeah, that's sort of penny drop moment. I'm like, you need, if you want to write full time if you or even if you want to, publish a book you need to um yeah you, you need to be a, have a bit more of a sort of professional pragmatic approach about it um so yeah um, just as a matter of interest how many people here are in a writer's group yeah there's a few there's a, we've got three four 
what's what's the best thing about being in a rise group? Why is that? You mentioned that, you mentioned that a couple of times. Why is that such an important thing? I go I. I sort of oscillate with writers groups because um, why is it the worst thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's incredible um, having people that will read your work. What happens in writers groups occasionally, not always, is um, is one of two things: people always love your work, or they always hate it. And is occasionally in writers groups there'll be one or two people that really engage with your work. They don't care about you reading their work as much as they're, they're there for the community they're there to um and i think this probably happens less uh, sorry more so outside of melbourne because and you know um the writers groups i've been involved in um you get people who turn up for one meeting with like five thousand words go cool thanks for editing it and then never turn up again and i doubt that would happen yeah maybe it does um but yeah so the best part about writing groups are people who can really engage it but the worst part of the people that either end of the scale that are your chair squad which you know that serves a purpose they all saying this is amazing um and not engaging it critically um and then there's the other end of the scale that are particularly brutal and harsh because um i, I don't know it's it's like in the arts you just kind of get that that where people uh, they don't want to champion your work as much as they want you to champion theirs or you to, you know, there's that sort of imbalance. Um, so I think writers groups are, are really important and they serve like this purpose that no, no other sort of, you know, there's no setting where you can get this sort of feedback and you can get form these fantastic connections. And some of the people in my writers groups are my like best friends um, and I met them through writing. Um, but I have had bad experiences as well. It's going to be hard to gauge what is really good, harsh feedback and what's just people just being jerks. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like the shit sandwich, right? Like, <laughs> this is great, uh, but you need to do this. By the way, this is great. Um, I think I think it's clear when people are like really engaged in your work um, and they care about your work and they care about you. I think, it, I think that is pretty obvious. Um, but yeah, the, the, it, it, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you just think they're being like particularly harsh. Um, but in actual fact, you are too close to the work to recognise they're being particularly honest. Um, so there, yeah, there is a again. It's it's a really neurotic thing. I think everyone's <laughs> getting to realise. Writers are neurotic. I think aren't they? this yeah. is only going to add fuel to the fire, probably. Yeah. So it's just I I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to um, describe that sort of sense of trust you get. Mm. You know, as soon as you know someone cares about your work, that's irreplaceable. And having this feedback loop, you know, um, or like an echo chamber of really positive or really negative all the time, that doesn't work. It needs to be nuanced, and people need to care enough to be honest when they need to. But also say, I love that description. This character is not working for me. This, you've nailed the setting. These little things, are, you know, that's that's what you survive off as a, as a writer because that's the only feedback you might be getting at that point in time. Um, we'll straight open to um, questions from the floor very soon. Um, but I did want to ask one thing and uh, more to do with the podcast, but uh, and I suspect the answer may be JK Rowling, but who is the <laughs> ultimate guest you could get for your podcast? Um <laughs> JK Roll. <laughs> uh, actually, AJ Finn would be high off the list, and I managed to get him on 
um, last year, which was incredible. And Joyce Carol Oates, again, would be right up there and I got her on. But um, honestly, probably Cormac McCarthy. Um, yeah. I think largely because he's really elusive, but also because um, I think he, I think he's a genius. I want to, I want to sit down and ask him things. I, I want to know that he hasn't really told many reporters. So yeah. And AJ Finn actually wrote a, a pull quote for your front cover too, yeah. which so that went a bit further than just getting him on your podcast. Yeah, yeah. I was like, um, he turned up and um, I locked the door and said, "Tell me how much you love my book." <laughs> uh, no, he was he was amazing. He's just like a lovely guy. Um, and I go, I knew he had my book from my US publisher. Um, my US agent, sorry, sent it to him and said, you know, his real name's Dan. He's like, Dan's got your book. Um, and I was like, okay. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, uh, and he's, I'm like, is that good? And he's like, it's amazing. Anyway, um, he was on his he was on his flight on the flight to Melbourne, and I knew he was coming. And I'm like, I need him on. And so. I knew the publicist, um, he's a, I think he's Collins from memory. I knew the publicist um, who was working with Malice and I said, get me AJ Finn, please. So I met him at his hotel um, in like lobby and we just had like a really good chat. But the very first thing he said to me, I'm like, how am I going to broach the fact he's got my, like how am I going to bring it up <laughs> without it being awkward? Um, and I said, I go, hey, AJ. And he goes, you're GP people Murray. And I go, yeah. And he goes, I read your book. I loved it. I'm going to send you a blurb. And I was like, and then I was just flooded with relief. I'm like, cool, let's do the interview now. You can leave the room. Nah, um, I, yeah, he was a really nice guy and he, he took the pressure off. And yeah, he was great. So it wasn't him that inspired you to just be JP on the front? <laughs> no, he, he wasn't. You know, like um, many of my close friends have always called me JP because um, it's my, you know, first and surname, like it's my initials, but also my middle initials, Paul. So. Um, it was an easy thing, easy decision to make. I never wanted to see Josh Pomari on the cover of the book. I don't know why. So, yeah. Okay. Um, and in terms of, uh, is he, is he the biggest get you, you feel you've had for you for your podcast? I like, think probably Joyce Carroll. I don't know. It's not. I don't depends know. on who you yeah, ask. I, suppose, I yeah. think um, Jocks Wrong is a pretty big get. Jocks Wrong was a big get as well, and I and I adore his books. In fact, I've read more of his books than Joyce Carroll Oates. Um, but Joyce Carroll Oates was like. She just got off a red eye flight. She'd just done a panel. She was on her way to dinner. She had, she wanted nothing to do with. She just wanted to sleep, and she was like, like, about to fall asleep when I was when I was interviewing her. And um, I told her like three times I'm from New Zealand, and she didn't. I feel like she didn't understand my accent or something. And like I'd ask her a question, and she'd answer a completely different question. It was hilarious. Um, but she was. I think she's probably the biggest name, but it wasn't necessarily the best interview. <laughs> That's usually the way it goes, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do we have any questions from the floor? Who who has a question for Josh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like ha- yeah. So, so that, that question, how did you get into the mindset of a seventeen-year-old girl? Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's a real challenge. Um, I. I know I have to be prepared for this question because um, I've, I've had a, a quite a lot already, and it's so. There's two things um, here. I've got a fantastic team of um, editors and a, and an amazing, incredibly generous agent, um, and they all happen to be um, women. 
so they've all been teenage women and they all if there's any points where i was possibly wasn't nailing it we we sort of reworked it so that that really helped first and foremost um second thing was my wife like was incredibly um, generous with some of her experiences and and what it was like and some of the challenges um she faced but when i say evie is me to some extent, um, it's no exaggeration like how close I felt with her character and um, certain anxieties she experiences without giving any spoilers away, I, I, I've experienced. Um, so I think the, the definitely the, the gender-specific elements of the, um, of the novel, I, you know, it's it's so, just so much of that is just trying to be as empathetic and, and just trying to really understand um, that and just having open ears when you get feedback from some of the people that have worked on the book because um, it was, you know, it, it was a real challenge to, to get the voice, um, just to get the voice right, knowing that I'd never been in that position and it was a real challenge for me um, just intellectually sort of, you know, just to kind of just to appreciate that some people are going to have are going to be critical of this or, or going to want to know about this um and i just wanted to make sure that whatever happens um i i didn't want anyone to say i knew it was written by a man like a, a man would have written that um and my sister's written and she thinks she's the main character she's quite um she's not her name's kate but that's got nothing to do um but yeah, it was just, I just wanted to make sure, because I know historically uh, men have written women um, characters quite poorly uh, more often than not, and I just wanted to make sure, like, I did my absolute best and made sure everyone was at the table when we were making decisions about certain um, decisions Evie would make, how she would react to certain things. So, yeah, it was just making sure everyone was involved and making sure I wasn't um, letting, like, my ego or anything get in the way. It's a very, especially for a first book too, a very brave thing to do. I mean, how how worried were you that there would be like a backlash or anything against yeah. that? Yeah, it didn't seem brave when I was writing it. Um, <laughs> Did you just feel like it just, it, that was the main character you was, wanted to write? It just had to be a woman? Yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 the toughest decision was um, the point of view. So just writing from um, Kate's perspective. That was the toughest decision because all of a sudden I'm in, I'm in her head. Um, and I felt, yeah, I guess I felt so close to her and I felt like she was, so much of me was, you know, was her that I, I felt I had um, that access. I felt like I could write that character. Um, without, again, waiting into spoiler territory, the book in its entirety is, is not from Kate's perspective. But, um, yeah, I, I, I did sort of grant myself freedom to write the book. I would want to read it, so, and I wouldn't, I, it didn't work as third person. Um, I, I just needed that sort of access. So, um, and you know, the conversation's still happening around um, who can write from which point of view, and that's, this is something I, I actively um, want to be engaged, and I want to understand and appreciate. Um, but I think at this stage, you know, uh, it is uh, it's just it's just how the the book ultimately had to be. Um, yeah. Any other questions out there? Yes.
Yeah, um, that's, that, that's really kind. I love to hear when people have been listening to the podcast. Um, so that, just for those who might listen to this later, because this might be recorded for a <laughs> podcast, that, the question was uh, when you ask people about their routine. So uh, do you want to know about Josh's routine or yes? Okay. Yeah, so, so firstly, um, you mentioned Trent Dalton who's like really idiosyncratic and like he's, he's a really um, energetic guy and I love that interview, by the way. Um, so my routine is, uh, it, it varies depending if I'm editing or writing, um, but I am um, obsessive to the point of fault. Like I, I, it's, I, I, it's a problem as much as it's, um, you know, it helps when you want to write a novel. Um, so like at, at my worst, at my most obsessive, I might be writing for like 16 hours a day maybe. Um, forcing myself to have breaks to go for walks and that's only because and it's not for me to judge but it's only because i feel like if you don't write as much as you can if it's if you're not at least thinking about it um you, you can fall out of the story and and so much of it for me is momentum so um with call me evie i had a full-time job and that was so the 16 hour days were not as frequent as I've been working on book two. Um, but with Call Me Evie, I would work um, all day and then I'd come home and I'd work till one or two, some morning, sometimes to the morning. Um, and I would, I, I just obsessively smash it out. And then, um, and then I would, I, so this has been the same with Evie and as well as the second book. I wait as long as I possibly can to get that sort of measure of objectivity. And then I'll come back to it and um, just read it without a pen in hand or anything and just read it and I'll go, this isn't working. I know it's not working. As a reader, I'm not enjoying this. And then I hope, hopefully that stays with me when I come back and sit down and start editing. Um, so the writing process and the editing process are really distinct. Day-to-day -day editing process is fantastic. Most people hate editing. Um, the writing is like the torturous part for me. Um, editing, I've got basically this sort of, it's like you've got the blueprint of the house now. Um, so when you're writing, you're like, it's like building a house without a blueprint. You're like, oh, cool, door goes there, that'll do. I'll come back and fix it later. And it's just a mess. Um, but when it comes to editing, you've got a general shape um, to work with. And um, I find I can just, with editing, I can work uh, in small chunks. I can, so like I can edit for a day, a week later, come back dive straight back in and know where I'm at. Um, whereas I just can't do that writing. So I, I usually, um, I think the first draft of Call Me Evie was probably knocked out in about a month maybe. Um, and the second novel was like 18 days, the first draft, um, because I just had to get it down. And then the editing is extremely hard work because of how I write. But I know as soon as I've got a first draft, I have that blueprint. Um, and then so day to day, yeah, I'll have a coffee, get up if I'm editing I'm pretty happy because it's for some reason easier I'll um, read probably the last couple hundred words of what I did the day before and then that sort of you know you get that momentum that'll kickstart something and then I just will edit for about an hour make myself have a 10 minute break make a cup of coffee or a cup of tea um, check the mail I don't know go to the shop get it like a I don't know get something to eat um, and then I'll go back and I try to make those breaks between sort of 15 minutes to half an hour and then I'll go back for an hour solid. And if I don't make myself break, 
I don't eat or do anything. I can just stay there all day. So, yeah. Is it before the, the, the some of the writing part is a bit like uh, building a house without a blueprint? So, in terms of planning, you're not doing any real kind of planning? You just nah. sort of. You, so, do you have the story inside your head or are you just rolling and seeing where it goes? Um, so, so Evie, I, the very first draft I had in my head pretty clear. Um, and I was like, I mean, it's, I wrote really close to a book, All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde, um, which was like, I was sort of like badly ate to structure. Um, if you've read that book, you'll know that's a bad idea. And so with that, um, that was a sort of semi-blueprint, but my story ended up completely different to that. Um, and so with the second one, I the, the idea was fully formed. And I think this happens, like this is something people say on the podcast, like they've written one book where it, it just came out in a rush, you know, like they it was unfiltered and it was fully formed and the idea was perfect and they loved it. Um, and I think, I think like the writing gods grant writers one book where they can do that because everything else is torturous and for book two which is with my um, publisher at the moment we're sort of working through some structural stuff um that was the case I, I it was so fully formed in my head um that when I sat down to write it it was just it was bliss like I like writing this and writing shorts or anything was torturous compared to that it, it just came out so easily and so fully formed no wonder you did it in 16 days yeah yeah <laughs> it was just like uh, i didn't pause i didn't doubt myself um i was i knew it was bad at a craft level but i i, I knew the story was solid and the, and it was the same story so generally when you're writing you're writing and you're like oh actually you, you you've got this idea but you get halfway through and you're like actually it'd be better if i did this and then all of a sudden you've miles away from where you thought you were going to be um with book two not the case at all i i knew where the start was i knew where the end was i knew where everything was going to happen and it just happened that way um and it was the the only um sore part of the editing process was getting the craft right because i just loved the story straight away um so yeah i'm not a planner um i don't have notebooks where i've mapped out you know crescendo and and Newman and made sure everything kind of works. I just have, um, I just had this idea that I thought was, I loved, that I thought was great, and and it just sort of came out. Um, I don't know. A jock got this from somewhere else, but Jock likes to refer to part of the, the first draft as being the vomit draft, where you just have to just put it out there. Um, <laughs> do we have it? Uh, and yes. Yeah, so that's a, that's so that, that question was how important is is background research? Yeah, um, it, it it's a great question because um, I'm going to go back to Jock. He's getting a lot of airtime here. He's got this ten percent uh, less than that. I think it was five percent rule. He's like, doesn't matter how heavily researched something is, there's someone that knows more about it. That and this is like five percent of readers that'll have like a gotcha that couldn't be right. Um, that rare diet wasn't available on this part of it. You know, like they, they'll, they'll just have one thing that no matter how much research you're going to get wrong. Um, I've got like a probably a 30% rule. <laughs> um, I, um, I, don't, I don't research um, a great deal before I write um, because maybe if I was operating in like historical fiction or 
um, like even like I know again with Jock like the say quota there's so much of that is like there's so many legal elements that you have to get right um, so there's certain genres where it's really important police procedural stuff you need to make sure that would actually be possible and and cops would act that way or whatever um, for me I just while I'm writing I can kind of sense something might not be right in which case I'll flag it and I'll come back to it and I'll um <laughs> I love that song <laughs> um no I'll, I'll come it's still going <laughs> they really want to talk to you <laughs> no no that's fine um so I will I will generally know um where I've cheated a little bit and where I where I possibly should have researched it and, and then I'll come back and check and make sure um, in terms of setting, I think it's, I don't call it research, but I guess it is, um, you know, like setting, everything I write always starts with setting and atmosphere. Um, and so like it's, my, I, I just want to be present wherever I'm writing. So I'll go and I'll, if there's something I, I know is going to work with the story, like I see, um, so like some cars will have like kind of like carpet on the dashboard like that's something I wrote down in my notebook for book two I'm like oh yeah one of my characters because I saw that at the setting I was at where the book happens to be set um, so with setting I think research takes the form of just being present in that place of observing it as much as possible um, and, and book two is set in Warrandyte um, where my brother lived so I got to spend a lot of time out there a lot of time on the river um, a lot of time observing the flora and fauna and, and walking through the bush and um, that that's the extent of my research really it's it's retrospective and sometimes it completely kills a whole plot um, <laughs> you know you have to cut it out because it, it just wouldn't happen um, so there are certain things I would save a lot of time researching first um, but I also have a friend who researches while he's writing and he, it's, I, I did a writing retreat with him once and we we're sitting next to each other. And in like four days, he wrote like 500 words and I was pulling my hair out. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't say to him, research later, just write it down. Because he would, he would stop and, and it's historical fiction based in Tasmania. And he is researching to the nth degree every single thing to the point that I think it stifles him creatively. Um, and I think it would do the same to me as well. If I'm writing, I'm writing. And as soon as I research something, I'm on the internet. And when I'm on the internet, I'm going to check out Twitter or BuzzFeed or something. And, that, and that's the last thing I want. So research is always retrospective for me. There was just something you just mentioned before that you, you, you could have just made up a, a fictional town in New Zealand, but you chose to, to go with a real one. Tell me about the thought process there. Yeah, um, it was... It was, it's something I still think about a lot because it's a mongrel mob stronghold. They're like a gang and they hurt people. Um, <laughs> You're worried about retribution now. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, just, I just wanted to get it right um, before I committed. So I, I spoke extensively with my publisher about this very thing because, um, because people care about real places. People might suspect, oh, this is actually whatever. Um, well, but it, it becomes a cipher for another town. Like yeah, that, like yeah. It, like if it wasn't set in Makatu, it was still set in Makatu as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It just had a different name. But you called it Takamu. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think they'd figure it out. Um, so Makatu, for me, um, it, it had to be set there. It didn't have to be called Makatu. As soon as you call it Makatu, you're bound to um, a certain sort of level of precision. Um, 
and I um, th- I've definitely granted myself certain liberties in terms of where shops are and 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 the layout of the beach and some of the roads and things like that. Um, but ultimately, I, I just I really hope I capture the atmosphere. And if I meet someone from Makatu and they're like, "Mate, come on, there's miles off," I'd be probably more devastated than. Um, like if the Australian said it was the worst Australian book of the year, like I would be, <laughs> I'd be so gutted if um if someone from Makatu genuinely said this isn't Makatu, you, you're not even close, um, because uh, you know that's I feel like I know the place. The place for me was like almost like a character. Like it, I just felt like I was that close to it, um, and that's why it had to be Makatu, even though no one's heard of it, even though no one's been there. It just had to be Makatu because I wasn't going to do sort of that much work and and mentally kind of like exists in this place for that long for me to at the 11th hour to go actually it's something completely different um not only that makatu um tourism really struggles so i wanted to like <laughs> give them a leg up no i'm all for setting books in real places don't worry about that uh yes Thank you. That's really really kind of you to say. Yeah. No, I I really appreciate that because it is, um, it it is, I think no one ever wants to read descriptions of setting. I feel like, um, I feel like if you sit there and describe the setting before anything happens, people hate it. Unless you're Tolkien, no one wants to read it. In which case, fill your boots. Um, So I just, yeah, so it was. Because my editor's like, you're going on and on about like the shape of the fern. I'm like, it needs to be perfect, Robert. You don't understand. Um, because it was that important to me and the fact that, yeah, that, that it sort of, it, as far as you can see, was pretty parallel to the real thing is, is really pleasing to hear. But for those of you who are listening at home, that was the ultimate compliment that everything in the book sounded like a real place and they were wondering if it was a real place. So there you go. Got uh, some more questions from the gallery. Yes. Um, I might have just known you, but did you say you had a US agent? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I was just wondering how that came about. Did you have an Australian one first to suggest that you get someone in New York? Or? How does one get yeah. a US agent? Um, so, so it's funny. So, Dan Lazar, by the way, so my agent in the US is like, just like, in emails and on the phone and everything is just like, Think of like Ari if you ever watched oh, from Entourage. Entourage. Yeah. Like that's how I imagined in my head. And you get to um when we met him, we went to New York, he was like this really kind of quiet, like really socially awkward guy. And I was like, it was so endearing. Um, because I thought he was like this <laughs> brash LA Hollywood. Yeah, dude. And everyone like everyone talked to him up and he knows everyone and stuff. And I'm like, this guy's gonna be like this real hustler, but he was actually really earnest and quiet and lovely. Um uh how I how I came in contact with him i i just have like an amazing australian agent and um and she just pulled all the strings i can't like this book wouldn't exist um without Pip, my agent there's a reason she's like the first person i acknowledge she uh she she shaped the novel she got it in the hands of um you know all, all basically all the australian publishers um she got it into the hands of uk agents and said you know this is i represent josh you need to read this book and and so she got me a uk and a us agent and i was extremely lucky um because i know and appreciate it doesn't it doesn't always happen 
that way. Um, and I think Dan even, when he read a really early draft, he was like, oh, it's okay, but Josh needs to work on it. And then we went back and he's like, yep, I think it's ready. I want to take it out to US publishers on Monday, basically, um, and signed me up. So it was, yeah, it was just honestly so much of it is luck and timing um, as with everything. So take it back a step. How do you get an Australian agent? Yeah, that's a good question because um, because in Australia you don't need to be agented in the same way you do, and particularly the UK is really tough. Um, but US, even I think like maybe still north of ninety percent of books would be agented, um, particularly in fiction. So um, yeah, so the US and UK is it's a lot more important to have an agent in, than Australia, and Australia's got an incredible small press um, network and small in, indie publisher scene here. So um, it's not, if the first thing I'll stress is it's, it's not necessary, particularly um, in certain, like literary fiction, short stories, poetry, you, all they're gonna do is basically take a percentage of your money. Um, in commercial uh, and thrillers and suspense and crime, I think, although not necessary, I think it's extremely helpful to have an agent. Um, and how I went about doing that was I, um, as everyone, probably most people have heard of Hannah Kent, um, who wrote um, Bear Rights and, and The Good People, most recently. She, I, I did a workshop with her and Rebecca Stafford through Kill Your Darlings, um, and she, I was like, I love your book. Um, and she's like, yeah, da, da. and then I read, I think it's in her acknowledgements saying, it's like, and my agent, Pippa Masson, I'm like, okay, I need her because this book's incredible. Um, so... I had like my sort of dream agent and I, I think I timed it well because um, if I sent her an any earlier draft, even one draft earlier, she wouldn't have she wouldn't have picked it up and I can guarantee you that. And um, so she's with Curtis Brown, which is like a pretty and then it's it's not impossible to land another agent at Curtis Brown if you do, if you're not picked up by the first agent, but they definitely talk. So um, it was yeah, it was scary when I sent it off to her i queried her and said this is my publication history i want um I'm, I'm working on a novel i think i'm seeking representation i'd love it if you would read it and she um she goes i've just come back from maternity leave it's good timing i'm not really looking to take on any new writers but i'd be interested to read the first couple of chapters and i'm it's no exaggeration i guarantee you she wouldn't have picked it up one draft earlier it was really just luck and timing um and I knew she was coming back from maternity leave, so I w probably would have sent it earlier if I didn't know that. Um, and her first feedback was lots of red flags, lots of stuff to work through, and it was a really different book. It was a, it was a um, more of a commercial book masquerading as this great literary work, which it just wasn't. Um, and so she and I worked through a few edits, and then um, and then we prepared to submit it to publishers, but. Um, it was just a query letter first. Hey, this is what I'm working on. Um, would you be interested in reading? And I think um, many agents, perhaps not most, many agents even on that would say, send through a couple of chapters. Uh, any more questions from the floor? How, how are we going for, for time here? When do we carry on? Carry on up the Kyber? Okay. Lock the doors. No <laughs> uh, do we have some more questions? Yes, Jay. Do you have a real job? Was the question. No, sorry. Uh, Do you have a day job? Um, so I have a incredibly supportive wife, 
um, and that's the, probably the answer. I, I was working for my brother as well, who was really, um, uh, I guess, generous and, and keeping me employed for as long as he did. I know I would have a job if I went back. At the moment, I'm, I'm writing full time and, and loving it, but I'm fully aware uh, the dream could end very quickly. So um, I do not, in short, have a, have a day job, but um, in, a, in different circumstances, even in this, everything happening with the book, I think if I wasn't, um, if I didn't have a really supportive wife, um, and if we weren't, even if we had children, I, I think I wouldn't be able to make that decision. I would, would have worked through, but um, I did, and I'm I'm glad, and I'm in a really happy, comfortable place. But uh, I'm fully aware that it could potentially end as well. So, yeah. Uh, any more? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Congratulations, by the way. You reword that question. Okay. <laughs> uh, the question is, um, uh, in, in short, if when you're at the point of copy editing, when you have spent um, presumably years working on the same manuscript and rereading it, um, how do you separate the forest from the trees? Um, and it's a great question because, again, it's not something you think about when you first start writing, it's that thing you're like, cool, it's, this is ready, it's polished, it's ready to go. And then like two years later and 10 rounds of edits, it's almost ready. Um, with copy edits at that stage, or at any point in, in the process, um, I really trust the people around me and, I've, and that's a really privileged and fortunate position to be in. Um, and so if someone, so a really great quote is, um, it could be about your editor, it could be about your friends, it could be about your, your spouse or anyone. Um, people, people, readers know when something's not working. They're always right when something's not working. They're always wrong when they tell you how to fix it. Um, and, and someone said that to me. At copy edits, they're right when they tell you how to fix it as well, I think. Um, so if you're getting any copy edit feedback from anyone and it's unless you strongly disagree with it, I tend to go with it even, like it's the one time I go against my gut basically is, is if um, someone or multiple people are saying, this is wrong, this needs work, this is what I do, this is how to fix it. At that stage, I tend to just trust it and go with it because it's that, the forest and the trees is a perfect example. You're just staring at these little black ants arranged in the form of words, trying to sort of, you know, make constellations of stars. And there's people who, you know, who aren't as close to it that can be more objective, that probably read it once, but the first time they read it, they've gone, that's wrong. You just sort of trust them. Are you talking about things that are like at a really like a sentence structure kind of level or things yeah. so, in a scene level or what do you... So this, at a scene level, um, I, the feedback I prefer, at like at a, so structural edits, um, not quite right. The scene is not quite right. This isn't working. I like that because they're saying to me, "You knew, you know that as well, but you're too lazy to try fix it." Because mm. generally, like I said, I'll I'll know it's not right, but I'll hope I can get it through, sort of thing. Um, so if someone says it's not quite right, that kind of gives you license to try to problem solve it. Um, and then, but when it's at a sentence or word level, I might love a particular word. And like someone else hates it, 
I have to trust them, I think, at, when it gets, you know, when it's crunch time, when it is, um, like, even if the sort of poetry or the rhythm of the sentence completely changes and, and it's not as, quote, unquote, beautiful or whatever, but it makes sense, I have to just trust trust them on that because they're the reader. I'm, I'm the one that's too close to it to look at it objectively. Was that helpful? Good. Okay. <laughs> uh, and any other questions? After so many cooks in the broth, does it still feel like your book after all that? Um, again, fantastic question. And this is a conversation I had um, today. Um, I said, you know, this was written by, it wasn't written by me, it was written by everyone. And um, again, my wife said, no, you wrote it. Like you have to you have to delineate between editing and writing. Um, it does, yeah, it, it does. Like ultimately, you know, every decision was was made by me. You get prodding and pushing in a certain direction. You can push back. Um, I think, I think there's decisions other writers probably would have made differently. Um, and the moment I realise I have that sort of control, I kind of accept that it, it's still my baby. It's you know, it's, it still came from me. Um, but like, I had no idea how much input and how helpful and how insightful. Um, my agent editors and, and publisher would be, I just had no idea. Um, and when you, so going back to the Unpublished Manuscript Award, I'm reading these things, they've never had the benefit of, presumably they've never had the benefit of a professional editing team. And they are so polished, so much more polished than Evie was when I sent it to my agent. And they're just so polished and, and again, the, you know, it's, we're drawing from such a rich talent of writers, um, a rich pool of writers, so, um, I, when I was looking at that, I, I felt guilty. I'm like, these people have done this themselves. And then, but that's just something I had to work through. And um, I think, you know, as long as, so Hashet, my team and Hashet, I think everyone's really happy and I'd love for their names to be on the book and, and they really put so much into it. But ultimately, you know, you're the one having to sort of make the decisions, even when those some of those decisions are prodded and, and are coming from other people. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> I tend. I, I asked Josh at the start. Do you want to read from it? Because as I, I personally hate I can, it, but, I can. I don't know. But I think you wanted to dodge it, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone I, really want that? I don't think it's. There's one enthusiastic yes out of the room. Uh, two, there was a I can try there. find something. I've got nothing prepared. Uh, I, I always have the problem that when, when I hear someone read it, and, I'm, and that if you do this now for the rest of this book, that I've got, it's a, it's a, I'm in your I'm, head. I'm going to hear you in your voice. Every time I read one of Jock's That's, that's enough just, reason to, to yeah. do a reading, I think. But go ahead. I'm just going to block my ears while you do it, though. Um, okay. I'll, go, I'm gonna pro I'll try to go early. I'll go early-ish here. Uh, I'm just trying to think, what would my publicist want me to read? <laughs> it is, yeah, it's on audio. Yep. Yep. Let, let's skip this and just everyone get the audio book. No. <laughs> um, that um, 
from page 31 has got, oh no, hang on, that just goes into. <laughs> I should have prepared this. I had a feeling this was going to come. Yeah, I was trying to, I was trying to help you avoid this. Um, I'll read um, chapter two. Good choice. Okay, I'll, not, not the whole chapter. Is this a good one? I don't know if it is. <laughs> okay. This is my first memory. I'm in the bath at the old house, the house down Portsea. Mum was sick and we had a nanny who would drift about the house, laying out my clothes for the day, fearing me to childcare, spreading raspberry jam over my toast and deftly cutting away the crust. Her name was Eloise. She was the first woman I wanted to be like. I recall snippets of her time in the house and her abrupt dismissal. I recall Dad passing her in the kitchen, his hand grazing her spine. I remember all the time I spent nestled against her chest as she read to me on the couch while Mum was sick. And of course, I remember that bath. Dad would eventually organise to have the hot water cylinder replaced, but back then the bath would only reach ankle depth before the hot water ran out. Extreme emotions, rage, bliss, grief, ecstasy, agony, are amber. They preserve memories whole. I remember every detail of that time. I remember the gold locket that dangled from Eloise's neck as she bent to shut off the tap. I remember the cloying scent of the lemon bubbles. In you get, she said, her voice light and sweet. It's still cold and empty. She frowned and flattened the front of her blouse. You don't need to stay in for long, Kate. I don't want to get in. It's cold. Come on, she said. Arms up. She pulled off my top, but when, I, when she went to pull off my shorts, I held onto them and dropped to my knees. No, Kate. Please, it'll only be for five minutes. I let her undress me. She picked me up, deposited me in the bath. Then I screamed. Kate, she said, with an owlish lean of, it, of the head. That's enough. I splashed water over the edge of the bath onto the floor as she left the room. Then to stop my shivering, I wrapped my arms around myself. When she returned, Eloise slipped and had to grab at the sink to keep from falling. She clicked her tongue. You've got water everywhere. It's cold. Do you want to get out? No, I just, just make it warmer. There's no more hot water, Kate. We can't make it warmer. Dad makes it warmer. Well, I don't see how, she said. She was on her knees now, dragging a towel over the floor tiles. Dad heats the water up in the pot. From her position on the floor, she looked up at me. I splashed water at her. Make it warmer, I said. Make it warmer. Then I screamed. She winced. Okay, okay, she said. She left the room again. It seemed a very long time before Eloise returned, carrying a large steel pot. Steam drifted in her wake as she strode across the room and set it down on the wooden seat beside the bath. Okay, Kate, move your legs away so I can pour a little in. I drew my legs up to my chest and Eloise poured. A gust of steam rose as the hot water rushed beneath me. It was too hot then. Then it quickly cooled. Eloise set the pot on the seat. Better now? I'm still cold. She tested the water with her hand. You'll be fine. That's warm enough. She tucked a loose strand of hair behind my ear. Can you just sit for a few minutes? I have to get your dinner on. Leaving the door open, she walked away up the hall. The water was still cold. Eloise, I called. No response. 
Eloise. Still nothing. Gripping the edge of the bath, I stood and I reached for the handles of the pot. It was heavy, almost too heavy for me to lift. Stepping backwards, I dragged it over the lip of the bath. The water rocked within, the edge came to rest against my stomach. It seared. I fell back and a scream ripped from my throat as the pot tipped over my legs. I screamed and screamed as beneath the surface, the water, beneath the surface of the water, blisters bubbled on my thighs. Then Aloise was there, her hand covering her mouth, her eyes wide. She pulled me from the bath, but the pain didn't stop. The screaming didn't stop. I thought it never would. A howl escaped that may have lasted seconds or minutes or hours. Holding, hands holding me under flowing water, I couldn't distinguish hot from cold. A long throat scorching vowel of pain. This is my first memory. I hated reading that, but it's so, <laughs> but it's written so well, but, which means it does its job. So, uh, unless we have uh, any more questions, then I would like you all to thank Josh for his time. And you will be signing copies. I'll be writing very thoughtful. <laughs> no, um, I think we've uh, we've got a handful of copies to sign. Very good. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming along. And thank you to the Blarney Books people, as always, who do an amazing job. Thanks for, thanks for having me, too. It's, uh, it's a lovely place, my first visit to Port Ferry. So very happy to be here.